you know? Uh, but, but coming back here to 1 John chapter 3, I'll just kind of give you an overview of what we've been studying here in 1 John. Uh, as we kind of go back to the scriptures, we see that, you know, initially John started off with the, with the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, and how he was without beginning. He always has been, and time has nothing on him. And, and we see how Christ is our advocate. We see the, our attitude that we should have towards sin. We see our attitude that we should have towards the world, that we're not to love the world, right? And um, also, he gave us a, a little bit of training in uh, eschatology a little bit about the end times, right? And the Antichrist, we covered that. Um, and we, we talked about adoption the last time I preached and how beautiful it is, how great of a love has been bestowed on us that, that we could be called children of God. And what an amazing thing it is to be adopted into the family of God, right? We talked about that the week before last. And any of those things that you want to hear, if you want to go back through it, man, they're on Spotify. There's some uh, the sermons you can go back through and, and listen and study. But coming here to, uh, to chapter 3, verse 4 in 1 John tonight, we, we find the apostle really shooting it straight with us over sin. I mean, he doesn't beat around the bush. He hits us hard over sin. And, and this should really kind of make us wonder, right? What is our attitude towards sin? What's our attitude towards holiness? Are we hurting when we sin? Are we broken over sin? Are we okay with looking at things we shouldn't look at? What's your attitude towards sin and holiness? And, you know, many of us really know the right answer, right, sitting in these pews. A lot of us can say the right things. A lot of us can know the right answers. But really, what is our attitudes towards sin and holiness depicted by the way that we live, right? It's all about uh, show me. I'm from the show me state. So you better show me. Don't just talk about it. Be about it, right? So tonight, uh, as we talk about sin and holiness, repentance, we'll talk about Christ. Some of you guys might get pretty offended. Some of you guys might even stand up and leave this room. I don't know. Others, I pray, will be called to the carpet to repent, to get right with Jesus. And by being called to the carpet, I mean just bowing your knee to Christ and, and confessing sin repenting. Uh, you know, let's not be afraid of holiness. Let's not be afraid of repentance. Let's be faithful to the text. Let's preach exactly what God has given us here in 1 John, okay? So, uh, like I said, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 through 10, and the verses should be on the screen. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. So, Lord, we're thankful to be here. We're thankful for the testimony that we've heard tonight and the singing. And what a glorious thing it is to be called a child of God. We thank you for bestowing um, that love upon us who are your children. And for those that, do not, that, that don't know you, that are here in this room tonight, I'm confident of it. Lord, I, I pray that you would draw them. Would you draw them to the Son? Would you save their souls tonight? Would you open ears and eyes and hearts and do the work that I can't do as a preacher, Lord? Would you get me out of the way? Would you speak through me? Would nothing stand in the way of us repenting, of, of being serious about sin and holiness, Lord?
Help us tonight, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, uh, jumping to our first point, I'll just jump right into it for the sake of time. We look at the habitual sinner, right? And we find those things in verses 4 through 6 and really in verses 4 through 5. But I want to ask this question. Can somebody who continually practices sin be called a Christian? Can someone who lives a life of blatant sin literally be called a Christian? So looking at verses 4 through 6, we really find our answer and it's spelled out very clearly. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then in verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. But we just kind of got to stop for a minute, though, and wait, right? Didn't John tell us back in in, in 1 John chapter 1 that if anyone says that they're without sin, they're a liar? Didn't he tell us that to confess our sin? He's faithful and just forgive us of our sins and forgive us of all unrighteousness. Didn't he say that back in chapter 1 and chapter 2? So how do we make sense of all this then? How do we deal with that? If he's saying here now that we don't sin as Christians, but back then he said if you don't confess your sin, you're a liar. What do we do with that? And that's where we have to be very, very careful when we study our Bibles. We have to pay attention to the words, right? Because if not, we'd be out here in left field away from everybody else with a doctrine that's not true. Like sinless perfectionism. Nobody on this side of earth is ever going to arrive to be sinless, okay? We're still going to have it. We'll get there, okay? Looking at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin. So what does that mean? What does it mean to practice something? So we look about, we kind of look at an athlete, right? We look at a baseball player, for instance. Uh, a, A baseball pitcher. He constantly throws the ball time and time and time again. Habitually picking the ball up. And throwing it. Intentionally picking the ball up and throwing it. We think of um, also the doctor. We think of the lawyer. The doctor who practices medicine. The lawyer who practices law, right? They wake up every day to go and do what? To practice their career. To practice their trade. To practice medicine or law. It's probably the first thing they think about in the morning and one of the last things they think about at night. It's their lifestyle uh, to practice uh, these things. So looking at verse 4, we also see it to say this, too, that also practice, everyone who practices sin also practice lawlessness. So whoever is practicing sin is also practicing lawlessness, and lawlessness obviously means uh, to be without the law, right? So we think of anarchists who believe in the absence of government and, and absolute freedom apart from any form of hierarchy, We think, uh, you know, they are the definition of lawlessness. They have no desire to adhere or to come under any law or stipulations imposed uh, on them by anyone. They, They think that they are liberated free beings and nobody can tell them what to do, right? So the same is true of those who practice sin and practice lawlessness. They are spiritual anarchists. Think of it that way. Who oppose the good law of God on every single level, right? They want no one telling them what to do, so they reject God and they stick their hand up to God. And they live under this deception of being free, but in actuality they're slaves to sin. Amen? And looking at verse 4 again, just track with me as we keep looking to the text. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So sin is missing the mark of holiness, uh, missing the mark of the holiness of God revealed in the law. So it's actually a hunting term. It's an archery term. Sin literally means to what? To miss the mark. So get the picture of a hunter pulling back a bow and aiming at his target and shooting over the top, maybe underneath the belly to the right or to the left, but coming up short and missing the target altogether. That's what sin means, okay? And as, and, 
And in in this view, we are pulling back our our bows and we're aiming at the target, which is the perfect standard of God revealed in the law. And we're shooting and we miss the mark every single time. We'll get into that. So everyone who wakes up in the morning with their mindset on practicing sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, witchcraft, hostility, I'll name them all. Anyone who wakes up to quarrel, to be jealous, to be angry, to be selfish, to cause division, to envy, or to pursue drunkenness or intoxication, those are, uh, th- these are those who stand in opposition to God. These are those who practice lawlessness. They are missing the mark of God. They hate His law altogether. These are those who stand condemned, under, uh, condemned to hell under the wrath of God. And, and you might be in this room tonight and you might be lost and you might say, Pastor, quit breathing down my neck and quit telling me about my sin. Like you're much better. But let me comfort you. Let me comfort you lost person in this room tonight with this. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? And, and the Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've all missed the mark. We're all guilty of it. You're not the only one. Amen. We've all drawn back our bows. We've all missed a standard of holiness that God has for us. And we've more than missed it, right? We've come a mile short of a 20-foot target. We missed it altogether. There was no hope. We've all catapulted ourselves into anarchy. We've all stood in opposition in some way to God. And it's not just us who have had sex outside of marriage. And it's not just us who who have uh, maybe done some drugs or got drunk. It's all of us. Everybody who has lied and cheated and stole and thought about murder and lust. It's every single person. For what's the Bible say? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. It's not just certain people. So how then are we to be delivered from this lawlessness? That's the question I want to ask you. What hope is there for us then? How can we be set free from practicing sin? And the answer is in verse 5, and his name is Jesus. Look at verse 5 with me. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Look, Jesus came born of a virgin to do away with sin and to do away with death. He lived a perfect sinless life, something that nobody else could ever do. He paid our due penalty on the cross. An innocent man hanging on a cross, the bloody cross, nails pierced in his hands and in his feet. The only perfect one to walk this earth died in our place. Do you get that? But he didn't stay dead because after three days he resurrected, amen, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's coming back to do what? To do away with sin and death once and for all. For all of eternity, it's going to be gone, gone, gone. It's not going to be here no more. If we've been born again, if we've placed our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, then we can confidently quote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we've been born again and placed our faith in Christ, we can confidently quote that. O death, where is your sting? Where's your victory? Victory's in Christ. There's victory on the cross, right? Didn't look like it. There's victory on the cross. So in order to experience the one who came to take away the sins, as it said in verse, in verse 5, we must first acknowledge or come to see that we are those who practice lawlessness. We must see that we are sinners and that we need to repent. It's Jesus who sets us free from the custody of sin and of death. It's Jesus who breaks us out of the captivity of lawlessness. It's Him. It's all Jesus. 
It's Jesus who appeared in order to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. It's Jesus. And I'll say it one more time just in case you're hard of hearing. Apart from Jesus, you are under the bondage of sin. There's no hope. Apart from Jesus, you're heading to an eternity in hell. Apart from Jesus, you will always practice sin. It's your nature. You want to change? Get right with Jesus. As we transition here to our next point, all of this kind of poses another question. So what about us who are, uh, who are believers in Christ? You know, how does this apply to us? How does, uh, how does this sin talk apply to us? If we've been set free from the bondage of sin, what do we do with sin? What should our attitude be towards sin? So looking at our second point, the holiness of the believer, we'll find that in verses six through eight. Look with me at verse six as we head straight into this here. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So John's straight up to the point, right? He says, no one, not one person, not one person who abides in Christ makes a lifestyle of sinning. Amen. Not one person. That's what it says. You read it with me, right? And you might ask me, you know, why is that? What does it mean to abide? As he says, no one who abides in Christ sins. And what does this have to do with sin in my life? You guys might pose those questions. So I want to paint a picture with you using John chapter 15 verses one through eight. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it, so that it, so that it may pr- uh, bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You abide, excuse me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So this is an illustration of abiding in its purest form, right? It's a, it's a being attached to the vine. The vine is Jesus. And apart from the vine, what, or apart from the vine what does the little branch do? It dies, right? It dies. If you aren't connected to the true vine of Jesus Christ, then you're dead. To abide in Christ is to be connected to Him. There's no sin in that vine. All the nourishment that the branch gets is the nourishment that the vine gets, and there's no sin in Christ, so we get everything from the vine, right? Amen? Unless branches are taken... So look, look, useless branches here in, in, this, in this first part are taken away or they're pruned, right? If you're a branch that is in Christ and you're not producing fruit, there's different, there's different variations of how people have, have uh, interpreted this verse. And I see it clearly like this. That if you're in Christ and you're not producing fruit, He's going to take you home. And if you're in Christ and you're producing a little bit of fruit, He's going to prune things out of your life so that you'll produce more fruit and be useful for Him, right? So he's going to take things out of your life that might be that that girlfriend or that boyfriend that's really bad for you. It might be that hometown. It could be that job that you're chasing that you think is really good. He'll start to cut those things out of your life. And it hurts. And it's discipline. So if we are in Christ, the true vine, we will produce fruit for God. So to abide is to continue in something or somewhere. It is to dwell, endure, be present, remain, or to stand. So how can we say that we're standing with Christ if we're practicing sin like it's our profession? How can we say that we are enduring with Christ if we're practicing sin? How can we say that we are continuing in Christ if we're practicing sin? 
How can we say that we are being present with Christ if we're living in sin and practicing sin, making it our habit, making it our day in, day out thing that we're seeking? How can we say that we're remaining under Christ or in Christ if we're practicing sin? How can we say that we are truly abiding in Christ as a branch abides in a vine if we love sin and we wallow in it like a pig in the mud? Cannot say that we are Christians and wake up every day with the intention to steal and to lie, to fornicate, to fight, to become intoxicated and to completely break God's law as if there were none. Can't say it. I won't let you say it. And you ask, you say, how do you know that, Pastor? You know, my response is, don't worry about what I have to say. Worry about what the text says, because what does it say? And I know this by looking at verses 5. As we see, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. And then in verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And we look at verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. We look at verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. I know this by looking at 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 and it's up there somewhere. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we're saying we're a Christian but yet we're, we're walking in darkness, we're living these sinful lives, we say that we're Christians and we're living this way, we're liars. How does a Christian live? Like a Christian, right? Righteously. What good would that be if I didn't tell you what to do with it, right? How does a Christian live? We'll get there. So the Bible speaks for itself. And I say to you guys, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Big Talk that's in this room, the one who has much to say about how much of a Christian you are, yet blatantly you live in sin day in and day out. I I say this to you. Don't run my Jesus down in the mud with you guys, okay? Don't do that. When it comes to sin, as genuine believers, we must follow the examples given to us in Scripture. And what do they say? James 4, 7 tells us to submit to God and to resist the devil. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 tells us to flee from sexual immorality. Romans 12, 21 tells us not to be overcome by evil. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 tells us to flee from youthful lust. Joseph ran out of his coat fleeing from sin. Amen? He runs smooth up out of that place. He took off. He boogied. John tells us to confess our sins. That's our attitude towards sin. We should run, flee, uh, avoid it, get out of there and confess it when we do sin. This ought to be our attitude towards sins. Uh, I already said that. And looking at verse 7, follow along with me. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So in order to be uh, faithful to the interpretation of this text, I've got to bring you back to, um, back to the, one of the main purposes of John's letter. And, and John had written about false teachers and sin, remember? They, they had taught this, this false doctrine that you could sin as much as you wanted as a Christian because it had no impact on your life, more or less. You could sin as much as you wanted to, had no impact on your spirit, it didn't really matter. Because you're in the body, you're in the flesh, you can do whatever you want. That's the false teaching that was going on. And so this is what John is battling here. So keep that in your mind as we're, as we're walking through these things. And that's who he's talking about when he's saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by them. We're called to live holy, blameless, just, uh, justly, uprightly before the Lord, right? To walk worthy of the manner that we have been called. Not to waller in sin and say that we're Christians. We're supposed to be different from the world, amen? 
And there's people that are still teaching this same kind of doctrine today, right? They still believe this today. And, they, and you have Christian songs that sing, let's have a beer with Jesus and hang out in the honky-tonk under the neon lights, right? They have songs that sing things like that. And then there's people who are in church that say, you know, as long as you're good, outweighs your bad, you're going to be okay, you're going to go to heaven. That's blatant, that's heresy, that's wrong, and it's not right. I said the same thing, just in a different way there. Did you catch that? It's wrong. It's not right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there we go. So, uh, exactly as John writes, I say to you, don't let, don't let anybody deceive you, okay? Don't buy into the trap that you can say some shotgun prayer, that you can get saved, produce no fruit, and live however you want to. For what does Matthew chapter 7 say? Beware of the false prophets who came to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from the thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's clear. That's Jesus' words. Don't be deceived. Don't buy into the lie. As children of God, we are to be righteous. Look at verse 7 at the tail end of it with me. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The scriptures are clear, guys. Look with me here on these proof texts on righteousness. Well, man, I really picked a bad font for that, didn't I? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that for what? That we would be holy and blameless before him. 1 Thessalonians 4.7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. 1 Peter 1.14-16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were... I don't have it on the screen. I thought I put it there. Go there for me, somebody. First, first Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, and read it when you get home, okay? The list could literally go on and on. However, I want to tell you something else that I see here, that it's, it's true, but it's not necessarily in the text. I, I don't think I'm making a stretch out of it, but it's not here, but I want, to, I want to give it out for a point of application. And I got to warn you, though, in our quest of being holy, in our pursuit of practicing righteousness, don't be surprised when someone calls you legalistic, okay? Don't be surprised at all when somebody says, you're just one of those holy rollers over there. You're a legalistic Christian. Don't be surprised when we try to hold somebody accountable and they call us legalistic. Or self-righteous, right? God has much to say about the holiness of the believer. So much. Those are just a few verses. Go through the Bible and watch how much he talks about holiness. And unfortunately, church, many churches have little to say about how we should conduct ourselves in the world. So many churches have lost the word repentance. So many pulpits do not preach holiness. We won't be one of those people. We won't be one of those churches. We won't be those pastors. 
When we live a life of holiness and practice righteousness, someone will always poke at us and call us legalistic. They'll try to say, you're too extreme. You're unrealistic. Those are unrealistic standards. And that's not the case. When we call someone to a standard laid down in the Bible, this is not legalism. That's the key words. When we call someone to a standard laid out in the Bible, this is not legalism. This is not heaping a heavy burden too much for them to carry. When we call a fellow brother or sister to a standard laid out in the Bible, do you know what that's being called? That's called being biblical. Amen? Amen. For someone to say that we're legalistic and calling someone to, by calling someone to obey God's word, they are actually calling God legalistic and insulting his wisdom. Legalism calls me, or legalism is me calling you to obey standards that are not in the Bible, right? <laughs> Gabby, your hair must be a certain length. Uh, Derek, you have to wear a suit and tie in order to come to church or you're not saved. Uh, uh, Tabitha, you've got to preach out of a King, or you got to read a King James Version Bible, or else you're not in the faith. Those are unrealistic, legalistic standards by example, okay? That's what the Pharisees operated in. They added their own oral rules and their own traditions to the law of God. I won't be like many other pastors. I won't be like many other churches and not say something about the life of my congregation. Just as I hold you guys accountable, I expect you guys to hold me accountable. Amen? Amen. Anybody can call me out anytime you want to. I pray that we live above reproach. Matt's uncomfortable right now because we're talking about holiness. Right? That's why he keeps going on over there. And I refuse to stand here and not call all of us who say that we're Christians to repentance and to holiness. So are you using drugs? Are you using alcohol lying to everyone around you? Repent. Be not drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's Ephesians 5.18. Are you living with someone that's not your wife or your husband? Repent. Turn from your sins and leave that situation. Get counseling and do it right. That's Hebrews 13.4. And it tells us marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Are you committing adultery, engaging in any form of intimacy with someone who is married and not your spouse? Repent, flee from sexual immorality. That's 1 Corinthians 6.18. Are you slandering or gossiping behind someone's back? They seem small, but that's very, very deep. Repent because Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. For us as Christians to, to live a life of holiness, we must first begin with repentance. We've got to stop what we're doing. We've got to turn from our sins. We've got to hate sin. We've got to turn to Jesus. We've got to throw ourselves at his feet and beg for forgiveness. Next, we've got to survey and study the life of Christ, and we've got to do our very best to follow in his footsteps. Just as verse 7 says, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as who? Just as he, Jesus, is righteous. Look with me at verse 8 as we continue to take through this, and that means we only have two more verses after this. So, Verse 8. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And I'll stop here and try to give you a palate cleanser because I trembled as I tried to put this sermon together, man. It, it's hard for me to preach this to you too because it beats me up, guys. I'm not, I'm not sitting up here being self-righteous, shaking my finger, condemning everybody else because I'm preaching myself too, okay? 
I got a lot of work to do as well. But it's in the text. I got to preach it. We ought to hold each other accountable. We ought to be righteous. We ought to live holy lives. Amen. So I'm being faithful. You're not mad at me. You're mad at God. So John goes a step further here by labeling the one who practices sin, the devil. That's hard, dude. You're Satan. You're practicing sin. You're saying you're a Christian. You're Satan. You're not, you're not a Christian. You're the devil. Who exactly is Satan anyways? Who exactly is the devil? And we'll read this here in Ezekiel 28 here in a minute, but God created Satan perfectly. Listen, guys, but it didn't take him very long to fall due to his pride and due to his desire to be God. So as far back as we know, so that's what he's meaning from the beginning. As far back as we know, basically from the beginning, Satan has sinned. He is the author of sin. And let's read that in Ezekiel 28. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as, a, as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Sin derived from Satan. This is, he's the author of it. Therefore, all who practice sin must be of him. But there's hope, guys. There's hope. This also gives us another reason as to why believers are unable to practice sin. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. There's hope. Jesus appeared for that purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Amen? So when Jesus stepped down off of his throne and was born of a virgin into this world, he crushed Satan on all levels, right? He escaped the vicious infant side of Herod. He resisted Satan's temptation. He lived holy. He lived blameless. Nobody could say anything bad about the man. He cast out Satan's demons. He triumphed over Satan's sin and death when he overcame the grave, raising from death to life after three days. Christ has destroyed the works of the devil and one day the devil and his angels will be cast into an eternity in hell by Christ where the fire never quits and the worm never stops eating, a place that was prepared just for them. Where everybody who, without faith in Christ, will go. Christ came to put an end to the tyranny of Satan. He came to put an end to the works of him. And anyone who turns in faith and believes on the name of the Lord can as well break free from the bondage of Satan, that wicked and evil fallen cherubim. And they can break free from the bondage of sin and from the bondage of death. So the next time that somebody calls you legalistic for living a life of righteousness and calling others to live holy, you tell them this. I am a child of God, bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, who came to do away with the works of Satan. It is my duty to walk justly, uprightly, holy, blameless, and above reproach. It is the life that I owe to my Savior to walk this way, okay? You tell him I practice righteousness so that no one can tell me I practice lawlessness, so that no one can tell me that I am of the devil. You tell them I practice righteousness so that no one can talk bad about my Jesus, you tell them, I live holy to the best I can because it is the best gift that I can give back to Christ after all that he gave for me. You tell them, I live holy so that people like you may see the change that Christ performs in a lowly sinner like me. So that maybe you too may experience the resurrection power of Christ, amen, to turn from your sins and to live a holy life that will draw others to Christ through his word and through deed. 
You tell them, you tell them that. You tell them that's why I live holy and blamelessly and justly and uprightly. You tell them that next time they call you legalistic. So my third and final point is, who is your father? And it's revealed to us in 9 and, and 10. Well, let's start here in verse 9. So everybody look down there with me. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And I always go back to Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27, but I don't care because this is regeneration at its finest and most beautiful, beautiful form. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, give you a, did they just get cut off is what that, what happened? And give you a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. Thank you, Lord. So I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 27. Yep, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It's beautiful. So when we're born again, we receive a new nature. A new spirit has been placed in us. It's capital S. And I wish you could see it on the screen because it's there, I promise, man. I don't know what happened to it. But it's a capital S. It's his spirit. It's the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes to take residence inside of us. And in this new nature that God gives us, it is impossible to sin because we have been born by God and he abides in us. You're probably scratching your head. You know, this, and this really kind of leads us back to that overarching question again. Are you saying, you might say, are you saying that a Christian never sins? And that's not what I'm saying. And that's certainly not what John is writing here. But I really think that Charles Spurgeon gives us some super, super duper tremendous help here. He says this, the new nature that God puts in us never sins. It cannot sin because it has been fathered by God. What you say, does a Christian ever sin? Not with the new nature. The new nature never sins. The old nature sins. It is the darkness that is dark. The light is not darkness. The light is always light. It's not possible that Christ who dwells in us could sin. What sin there is is or what sin there is in the believer comes from the remnants of corruption. The spirit that is implanted can never sin. Can never have communion with sin any more than light can have communion with darkness. As believers, we wrestle between the flesh and sin. Does that make sense? Day by day, we're being sanctified as believers. We're becoming more and more set apart from the world, from sin, and into Christian maturity. So who is at work sanctifying us? Who's at work inside of us sanctifying us? It's only the Holy Spirit of God, right? It's the Holy Spirit of God himself. Therefore, we will no longer continually practice sin, making it our life's mission. Rather, we'll resist sin, pursue righteousness because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Total transformation. So look with me at verse 10, and I'm hurrying, guys. I'm sorry. Verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. We'll cover that love of the brother here deeper next week, but... You heard me say this, and you'll hear me say it again. It's not new by any means because John wrote it almost 2,000 years ago. There's only two families that are present in this world today, the children of God and the children of the devil. Which one do you belong to? That's the question. There's children of God and the children of the devil. And it breaks my heart to say this, but many professing Christians today, including some of y'all in this room, make it very hard for those on the outside to see exactly what family they belong to, what, exactly what family you belong to. 
In other words, to this world, to those outside of the church, it is hard for them to tell if you, a professing Christian, are genuine or not because of the way that you live. Remember those moments that we have sometimes, right? If somebody's seen us in our deepest, darkest moment, they wouldn't even want They would say, that person's not a Christian. And I'm flat out exhausted. I'm flat out sick and tired of Satan's children calling themselves Christians. I'm tired of it. Are you tired of it? Are you one of them? Do people know what family you belong to? How long are you working a job before, they tell, before somebody can tell that, that that dude's a Christian? Are you blending in with the rest of them? So, so do people, the people that are lost get a bad taste for Christianity because of you? We've all met those Christians, right? Give us a bad taste for Christianity because of the way that they are. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do, or do you not recognize that about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you and unless indeed you fail the test? There's a glow. People should know that you got Jesus in you. What works... Uh, what works are you uh, habitually practicing tonight, church? What works? Are you practicing righteousness or are you practicing lawlessness? There's two options, guys. Children of God and children of the devil. The Spirit of God will not allow you to enjoy sin, guys. Born-again believers will not live lives of sin. You read it with me. It's impossible. I'm not saying that, but the Word of God says that. If you're in the faith and you, and you have sin tonight and you're in sin tonight, then I know that the Holy Spirit is doing backflips in your heart, guys. He's doing backflips in your chest. You're so grieved. You're so convicted. And let me tell you something, Christian. You better answer that before you can't. Well, God may come take you home, and then where will your rewards be? Nothing but a fruitless branch, right? How real is that? How much fruit do you got in your life? Nothing but a fruitless branch is what you would be. So I pray and I beg you, consider your ways and accept the Lord's discipline of pruning. Repent. So listen up and lean in real, real, real close. I'm closing now, okay? I know that tonight's been a hard message. I know that it's rough. I know you guys probably hate me and you guys really want to fight me probably now, huh? It's repentance not easy. Holiness is not easy, but it's necessary, right? People got to know where we stand. People got to know that we're Christians. My prayer is that God calls each one of us, including myself, to the carpet tonight to repent and to examine ourselves. That we'll practice righteousness. That we'll give testimony to others as to which family we belong to by the life that we live. I want to point something else out in this passage here in closing. That in the middle of this straight talk about sin, in the middle of this straight talk about genuine Christianity, in the middle of this hard passage, John is sure to point to Christ. Over and over again, he points back to Christ. So look with me at verses 5 real quick. He appeared in order to take away sins. Verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Why is this important? What does that matter? Because without Jesus, there's no hope, right? There's zero hope. Zilch. If you do not have a relationship with Christ tonight, then let everything that you heard about holiness and sanctification and righteousness go through one ear and out the other because it's impossible for you to live a life of righteousness apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you are wicked, you're bent towards evil, and you're hell bound. The only way to become a child of God and to enter into the family of God is through Christ, and that's it. There's no other way. He is the one who destroyed sin and death, Satan. Without him, you cannot enter into the family of God. Without him, you are hellbound and you are lost forever. As Matt says, the flames of hell are licking your heels. You must come to a place where you realize that you're a sinner practicing lawlessness, that you're not a good person. Not at all. And in case you missed it throughout this sermon, I'm going to tell you one more time. Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I'm a chief. You can't be no worse than me. 
Christ came in the world to save sinners. The king stepped down from his throne, born as a baby, and laid down his perfect life for us to save wretched sinners. For those of us who are Christians in this room tonight, holiness is unattainable apart from Christ. In order to practice righteousness, in order to practice holiness, we must set our faces on Christ. Set your face, face like flint, hard and steadfast. In order to practice righteousness, we, we, we have to do that. He alone makes us righteous. His Spirit alone sanctifies us to live a life of holiness, to live a life for God. We can't do it by ourselves. If we want to live a holy life, acceptable and pleasing to God, we must start with repentance. We have to start there. We must know that Christ has won, defeating the works of Satan, having this right understanding and knowledge of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, of having his very spirit living inside of us. We will have no choice, no choice, no, not one choice, but to live righteously and holy and set apart for him in this world. So tonight I ask you again here as I close, what family do you belong to? What family do you portray? Do you look like the devil or do you look like Jesus? Who's your father? Let's pray. So Lord, I know that it's been a hard message and I know that I preached it fast, but I just pray, God, that you, that you would open their hearts and open their ears to hear it, Lord. That, that God, this congregation, this flock would hang on to uh, the verses that were read, not my words, but your words, Lord, and that they would allow it to cut them deep tonight and maybe even right now in this service, that if there's somebody in here that don't know Jesus, God, I pray that you'd save them. And Father, I just pray that you'd call all of us to repent from our wickedness, from any sin that we have in our lives. It doesn't matter. Some of us wear it more extreme than others. Just call us, Lord, to repent now, tonight. Don't allow us to leave without taking care of business with you. In Christ's name, amen.